1 Samuel chapter 17. We'll read from verse 1 to 11, and then continuing from 20 to 27. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Socho, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Socho and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out, out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Picking up at verse 20. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to... Excuse me. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. We're carrying on in um, 1 Samuel 17, starting at verse 38 and reading through to the end of the chapter. That's on page 289. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. 
He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armour. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog? Did you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in, his, in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, 
Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now, the first week of the pandemic, let's go back there to March 2020, and Simon Heffer, the columnist, wrote this, scientific advance does not produce a right to consistent good health and ever-increasing life expectancy. He went on to talk about progress and human progress. For all the wonders of the NHS, of research, of welfareism, we remain fragile human beings. He discussed the reality of death and pointed out that every single one of us will face death. And he described himself as a secularist. And then he wrote this, secularism is a fair-weather religion. And he challenged Christian leaders to speak up, which, by and large, they failed to do. Uh, today, we come to the enemy. And today we come to the greatest of all enemies, and our subject is death and the devil, sin, death, the devil. And today our concern is that with the greatest fears we face, or at least the greatest fears we ought to feel we face, the ultimate foe, and our aim today is to see that God has a man who has conquered our greatest enemy. If I may, right up front, I'd like to take Simon Heffer's observation and to su suggest that if we have not yet found an answer to death and to evil in this world, then our philosophy, however much it might be a whole-life philosophy, is simply a fair-weather solution. We need to dig deeper and keep looking urgently. We've got in front of us what one author has described as one of the greatest short stories of all world literature, and another, one of the all-time favorites of all of the stories in the world. No pressure on the preacher, then. The narrative itself is one of the most beautifully crafted and sophisticated pieces of writing you will ever find. It works both as a standalone piece, but it's not intended to stand alone. And at multiple points, the author weaves the story of David and Goliath both into the story of the whole of 1 Samuel and into the story of the whole of biblical revelation this far. Let me just draw attention to a few of the brilliant pieces of writing that we have here. Uh, did you notice how Saul is depicted in verse 11? When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And tall Saul has now met one taller than himself. And arrogant Saul, who has failed to obey God, is now left cowering in his tent. And then did you notice how David is described in verse 14? There we've got, he's the youngest of David's sons. Actually, it's literally the smallest of David's sons, the least 
And so small David, the man whom God has chosen, the anointed of the Lord, God does not look on outward appearance, but on the man after God's own heart. Remember last week. And then that's that beautiful moment when David leaves the provisions with the keeper of the baggage and goes to face the enemy. And we're reminded that Saul, when he faced the potential of becoming king, went and hid amongst the baggage. And then all the way through, David's prowess, skill as a shepherd is emphasized again and again and again and again. And we're caused to think of the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I have chosen one to shepherd my people. And then there's that brilliant piece where Goliath and his demise is described in verse 49. He fell on his face to the ground. And remember how Dagon is described back in chapter 5. Dagon had fallen face down on the ground. Well, there are so many other features that, uh, you know, just it's worth pouring over this story. But for example, from the moment David appears on the scene, he takes charge. I don't know if you saw that. He takes charge with his brothers. He takes charge with Saul, who's supposed to be king. David's now the anointed. David takes charge. He takes charge in the battle, and he takes charge when the battle is over. And there's also a beautiful moment of suspense. We we ought really to take this story over three weeks. We can't, but there's a brilliant moment where we have the enemy described, and and verses 1 to 11, and then in verse 12 begins, now David, and then we're left waiting. I mean, it's a classic cliffhanger. And if you were making a box set, you know, this would be the moment. Uh, of course, we would all binge watch it anyway and dash on to the next one. But, you know, if you were week by week by week, you'd stop at verse 11. Now, David, what's going to happen? And, of course, we're at the turning point of 1 Samuel. And actually, we're at what we are at a key turning point in the whole of the history of God's people who have been looking for one who would be able to defeat death all the way from Genesis chapter 3. Chapter 5. And God's people have asked for a king. And they've asked for a king who would deliver them from their enemy. And they'd chosen a king after their own sight, who would not listen to follow. And Saul had failed. And now we have David, a man of God's choice. And we're left wondering can he cut the mustard? Is the religion of the God of the Bible just fair weather religion? Can God save us from our greatest enemy? Well, let's get right into it and dive into the enemy himself. We should spend a whole week on this, but you remember in the 1980s where the All Blacks, the New Zealand rugby team, you know, they had a guy called Jonah Lomu. Some of you won't remember this. Jonah Lomu, he was just kind of vast, and we were all told that the All Blacks were coming to the World Cup and they had this guy who was like a kind of beyond the realms of fairy tales. He was so huge and he played on the wing. If only they could get the ball to Jonah, then it would take the whole of the England team who, you know, um, paled into insignificance against this great giant uh, and, uh, and they wouldn't be able to stop him. And indeed they couldn't. Well, the size of Goliath is stressed. You can see it there in verse 4. 
that came from the camp of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath, whose height was six cubits in a span. That's around about nine foot six. You think your brother or your sister's tall? Hey, hasn't started. And then there are his defensive systems, verses 5 and 6. So his body armor alone weighed 57 kilograms. That's 126 pounds over 100 weight. Not only did he have a helmet, but also impenetrable armored plating all down his torso and then his legs. And his shield was so substantial that he had to have a guy running in front of him or stagger in front of him to carry it. And as if his defensive protection was not enough, his offensive weapon system was enough to spread absolute terror. So his javelin was a kind of curved sword, a really long thing, sharpened on both sides. His spear had thongs hanging from it to make it easier to throw, like on a weaver's beam, there are strings attached. And the spear was 15 pounds in weight. Is that seven and a half bags of sugar? Well, you wouldn't know what sugar is. Most of us were also sort of trendy nowadays. We don't drink it, but it's, it's very, very heavy. He is a one-man fighting machine. So I looked up the Challenger 3 main, bat main battle tank, its active protection system, its modular armor, its suite of sights enabling the commander to fight day and night, its new 120-millimeter cannon. And I thought to myself, well, I'd like one of those. Actually, I didn't think that, but the British Army would like one of those. It's still being built and probably will be in 10 years' time still being built. But this Goliath, he is like a kind of... Challenger 3, Leopard, Abraham's M1A2, main battle tank, all combined in one, instilling terror. The metal work alone, remember, the Israelites had no metal workers. His name means the man of the between. And he stood in the valley of the shadow of death. Not just his armor, though, it's his speech. Three times he speaks, each time he disdains Israel, and each time he defies God. And the author emphasizes the defiance. Six times the word to defy comes in the narrative. So here is a tall man who mocks God and disdains God's people. Look at verse 10. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. And there again in verse 23, he spoke the same words as before. And then verse 41 and 42, when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me as sticks? He cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. So here is a tall enemy who defies God. And you remember 1 Samuel chapter 2, talk not so very tall, tall in arrogance. God will bring his enemies down. He fell face down on the ground. No wonder the Israelites were dismayed, a defiant enemy. You can ask me about this in question time. There's some suggestion that Goliath is depicted using similar language of that describing the serpent in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, and therefore Goliath is a representation of Satan. I'm always pretty nervous 
at such comparisons when the author does not specifically speak about the language in that way. Literature simply doesn't work like that. And it's always struck me that we might be more ready to draw connections on the basis of one or two words that we have noticed than the author who wrote it intended. Having said that, the Philistines were the great enemies of God's people, and Goliath is the man of the between. And the author is deliberately tying this into the narrative of the whole of 1 Samuel and then into the narrative of the whole of the Bible. And David rightly calls him this uncircumcised Philistine, and therefore surely it is right to see him, not on basis of one or two words that happen to be able to play snap with, but it is right surely to see him as the enemy and the enemy of God's people. And is there anyone who can defend us against the enemy of God? The Lord's anointed. Point two. All we know of David so far is that he was chosen by God. On previous occasions, when God's Holy Spirit descends on God's leader, God's anointed, they always go out to face God's enemy. Gideon did, Jephthah, Samson, even Saul did. So with those words, now David, well, we've got the enemy, what's going to happen? And remember, David is the smallest, and God does not look on outward appearance, and David is the man of God's own choice. And the whole book is about the Lord's anointed, And as with Goliath, David has three speeches, and he speaks to the people of God, and he speaks to Saul, and finally he speaks to Goliath. And really, we need to major on the speech to Goliath, but just notice the speech to the people, verse 26, what shall be done? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So already you can sense that indignation, can't you, in David, this man of God, God's anointed. How dare he defy the armies of the living God? Makes you think of the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, doesn't it? And then to Saul, let no man's heart fail, verse 32. Let no man's heart fail because of Goliath. Your servant will go. And then verse 36 Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And you get that same sense of indignation. How dare he speak against God, whoever he may be, whether he's a headmaster or whether he's a university professor, or whether he's a celebrity atheist, or whether he is God's great enemy, Satan himself. How dare he? In passing, you notice Eliab, David's brother, his eldest brother heard when he spoke to the men, his anger was kindled against David. Why have you come down and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? You'll always find people when you're a man or a woman of real courage for God who look down on your courage. Jesus did his brothers. But it's really the speech to Goliath. So turn to page 290. 
Uh, you remember Gladiator? Um, most, some of you will have that speech committed to memory. You know, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, and all the rest of it. This is one of those kind of epic speeches that we need to commit to memory. And the little scene of David picking his way down the mountainside would be a film director's gift, wouldn't it? Armed only with a sling and a few stones. And above everything else, I think it is the confidence of David in the living God that makes him so ferocious and fearless. So verse 45, you come to me. Incidentally, he said to the Philistine, from the moment Goliath is introduced, he's then described as the Philistine. It's a brilliant touch. The Philistine, the Philistine, the Philistine. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. There's courage, there's confidence, but there is a fundamental concern with the honor of God's name and the deepest possible certainty that there is a living God and he will act. And throughout The author stresses that David has no weapons, but only his sling and his stones. He heads down in verse 40 with only his sling and his stones. In verse 45, he makes it clear, you come to me as sword and javelin, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And in verse 50, in case we haven't got it, David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. It is God who saves. It is God alone who saves. There is a living God. He will save through his anointed who trusts in him alone. In fact, I reckon you can come away from this incident wondering actually if it's David's victory or God's. Okay, so what are we to make of this? We're going to come now to, I know people like kind of application, all this sort of stuff, but I think we ought to be able to work it out for ourselves, really. We've got the story out there now. But if you want to say, what are we to make of this? Let me begin by giving you some suggestions of what we shouldn't make. As you can imagine, there have been any number of attempts at expanding the story of David and Goliath. And with the youth group away last week, I thought I would confess last week that I'd gone on to chat GPT and asked chat GPT last week to write my sermon for me. Now, if any of you are ever tempted to do this, let me tell you, when it comes to sermon writing, chat GPT got less than a one. It was a big, fat F for fail. Well, you know how every now, nowadays everybody wants to have their marks retested and resat and redone and have a fresh look at it to see whether. Well, I thought I'd give ChatBT just one second chance, then I'm not going to do this again for a very long time. Here it goes. 
This story is rich in symbolism and offers important lessons about faith, courage, and the power of God to overcome seemingly insurmountable enemies and adversaries. With God's help, we can overcome any obstacle that we face. Well, I actually have to confess, I've been slightly warned off that sort of approach by Del Ralph Davis, who puts it more bluntly than I would have done. If we don't listen carefully to this text, we'll end up bringing in all the junk about being courageous in the face of your own Goliath. And GPT does exactly that. So, you know, rather wanting somebody to write my sermon for me, I went online and just Googled sermons on Goliath and David. I thought, well, somebody must be able to write a decent sermon for me this week, so I can put my feet up. And this is one of the ones which came up. Is your Goliath a town bully, the temptation to steal, the desire to swear? Whatever your Goliath is, it can be defeated providing you have the five stones that David had in his pouch, faith, obedience, service to God, prayer, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, I don't know if this has struck you, but can it be right that in a book about God's anointed king, the primary application of the key moment in the book would actually be little lessons for me? I think we can do better than that on God's enemies. With the author so deliberately weaving this text into the narrative both of the book and therefore of the whole of the Bible story, it has to be right as we go through 1 Samuel chapter 2 and the prayer of Hannah who broadens the enemies much wider than simply the Philistines but to the enemies of God in the whole Bible story for us to consider the great enemy of God in the whole of the Bible, Satan and sin and therefore death. And I want to ask you, if I may, I know this will be a very raw for some of us, to consider your own death for just a moment. People sometimes ask me what I do for a living, and I usually reply, I prepare people for death. They think I'm an undertaker, and then I talk to them about their own personal sin, accountability to God, judgment that lies on the other side of death, and the certainty of meeting God, their creator. Often that will bring the conversation to something of an abrupt halt. Just before before Christmas, I might have mentioned this in the carol service, but just before Christmas, I spoke at a carol service just down the road. I happened to notice as I was speaking, it's always very dangerous to edit your script as you're going along. I happened to notice that quite a number of the congregation were, well, you know, knocking on a touch. And so I said to them, you know, we're all going to die. And looking at you, <laughs> looking, at, looking out on the congregation, I think some of us may die a little earlier than others. Anyway, afterwards, a formidable lady approached me. I'm quite good at spotting formidable ladies and usually dive for cover, but I didn't manage on this occasion. A formidable lady approached me and said to me, William, you talked about our death. You don't look so very far off yourself. <laughs> so, well, fair enough. I got as good as I'd given But what are you going to do about your sin? And what are you going to do about death? 
And because Satan, from the very opening pages of the Bible, is the great deceiver, and then, once he has deceived us, the great accuser, every one of us faces a very, very significant, urgent problem. And if our whole life philosophy has not got some means other than some sentimental nonsense of going to be with the stars in the sky, of tackling death, then we are woefully unprepared. And so we come to God's king as he heads down this good shepherd into the valley of the shadow of death to meet the great destroyer, looking so weak and so feeble. And of course, 1 Samuel is a book that simply introduces the concept for us so that we might be able to get a handle on who God's king is and what he might be like and how we might understand him and see him. But as he heads down into the valley of the shadow of death, unarmed bar just a feeble sling and a stone, we look forward to the one who had no form or majesty that we should look on him, no beauty that we should desire him, who went and faced Satan for 40 days and 40 nights, who on a daily basis had the forces of evil against him, through the taunts and derisions of the religious leaders and even his own brothers, in the face of the jealousy and mockery, alone in the Garden of Gethsemane, alone on the cross, as he carried God's judgment at your sin and mine and then rose victorious from the grave. There is one who has defeated God's enemy. And if we will only shelter under the shadow of his wing, then we will have a true trust, a real confidence on being on the winning side. I think ChatGPT fails hopelessly. The five stones are obviously pretty fatuous. But there is surely application for us on being on the winning side. For this same spirit dwells in and amongst the people of God. And knowing that the Lord Jesus has defeated Satan, secure that the worst they can do to us is kill us, does not this same spirit breathe confidence and courage into the people of God? I pray that it will. Let's pray together. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our fathers, we look out on humanity and the reality of sin and death and Satan, this terrifying enemy. We praise you, the living God, that in and through your only son, the Lord Jesus, your obedient servant, you have conquered sin and death. The devil is a defeated enemy and we can walk with confidence against every foe. And we thank you in Jesus' name.
Amen. First one, um, William, can you help us with the timelines here? It seems like Saul knew David in chapter 16 and now doesn't. Yeah, I think that's really, I mean, actually much more difficult, if that's a question that you have, is verse 54 of 1 Samuel chapter 17. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Well, actually, David doesn't conquer Jerusalem until 2 Samuel chapter 5. So that's an equally difficult one. And I think we need to try and understand what the Bible authors are doing. So I often say to be provocative to some of our kind of young, budding theologians, that the theologians of the Bible are the Bible authors. In other words, God so inspired those who wrote the Bible that they, if you like, put the theological understanding in the text for us. And we don't have to go casting around for some, uh, this is me being more provocative, 5th, 17th, 16th, 17th, 21st century theologian, because the Bible itself has its theology and we need to follow the theology of the Bible writers. So could it be, I'll put this to you to think about, that the author of 1 and 2 Samuel is wanting to teach us things about God's anointed king and has taken incidents, and it's plain and obvious which those incidents are, and put them ahead of the timeline so that when we then come to read the next piece of narrative, we get the point that they're making. And I think that's exactly what's going on at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 16. Here is an incident that took place after David had uh, defeated uh, um, Saul. Uh, Sorry, David had defeated Goliath. Uh, Saul, of course, didn't know about who David was in chapter 17. And what the author has done is taken this up front in order to show us and teach us key lessons about David as we read the next piece of the narrative. Precisely the same in chapter 17, verse 54. And he's not actually going to put the head of Goliath, which I take it he pickled, otherwise there are some problems, uh, all sorts of problems. But he, he, he doesn't take the head of Goliath and put it in Jerusalem until he's defeated Jerusalem, until he's conquered Jerusalem and, and established himself as king there. But the author is wanting us then to read through the rest of these passages you're going to be teaching next week with the understanding this is the anointed king and he is going to set up his... And, and so we're then asking, how does Bible writing work? The gospel writers are exactly the same. They are commissioned by Jesus as the theologians of the church. And our job is not to impose 17th century ideas or whatever on the text, but rather to find out what God is teaching us through those who Jesus trained to be the theologians of the church. Sorry if that's a bit technical, but it's a really imp- it was a technical question, and it's a very important one. Thank you, William. Um, we've heard a lot about King Saul. Why do we think we need to hear about King Saul? Why couldn't the Lord have just given us given David straight away? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I hope that was clear over the last few weeks. Saul is a um, an object lesson in choosing a king after our own hearts, according to human criteria. So Saul, 2 Corinthians, shows us a certain amount of that. The disastrous choice of humans. 
as we look for a king like the kings of the nations who will defeat God's enemies, we see everything. Now, on two, two a couple of occasions, we're, we're told that God chose Saul, but then could it be, rather than getting in a tangle over that, could it be that God deliberately chose Saul so that we would be shown the sheer stupidity of choosing our own leader and the failure, the abject failure of human democracy when it comes to choosing a king for ourselves. So, I mean, we don't need to be shown the failure of democracy in choosing our own king. After all, some of you chose Donald and then Sleepy Joe. And if you think uh, you did badly, well, look at who we've chosen over the last few years. So human democracy, you know, it's not, not a success, not going to give us the leader we want, or need, rather. It'll give us the leader we may want, but there'll be a failure. Whereas God, God chooses not a man of his own choice. So I think, you know, it's that sort of thing. I think it's an object lesson in uh, human failure. Thanks very much. There's a question here, why is David anointed king so long before the end of Saul's reign? But I think it begins to answer the question, brackets, is this a deliberate demonstration of the way God works? Um, and I think we come next week, 18 through 23, I'd encourage you to read ahead because that's, I can't do the maths on the fly, five chapters, six chapters. Um, but actually, as we go through there, we're going to start to see a lot about uh, the Lord's anointed, understanding him, understanding how to respond to him. And so I think that's at least part of the answer. Would mm, thank you, you add anything to that? Sounds very good. Um, death is a long way off for us, for some of us. Why think about this now? What if death might not be for 50 years? Why do we need to think about it? Well, if I may suggest, what makes you think that? Extraordinary idea that you think is a long way off. Come and do my job for a while. The idea that, that this picture isn't one for us to be um, applying too directly the chat GTP and others like that, this question says, is there some sense in which we look at David's example um, and can learn from that? Yeah, and that's why I put the piece in on the winning side. I thought we'd have 25 minutes and it was quite long enough. Um, but at the point on the winning side, I think there is, but only if you come through the right channel um, and so the right channel is to recognize that we have enemies, that God's king is Lord. But then as you come through the right channel, I am the people of Israel. I am now, if you like, following the Lord Jesus. I am on the winning side. I have a king. And it seems to me that gives huge confidence to us as we face Satan and his lies in all sorts of areas. Um, I remember a student, great girl, she, she has gone to Australia, sadly. She was the most ferocious um, sharer of the Christian good news, in a lovely, gentle way, but, you know, full on. And she was sharing the good news of Jesus in her university. And the dean, supposedly Christian, of her university forbade her from speaking of Jesus any longer. And I remember saying to her, don't pay a blind bit of attention to what your dean said. How dare he? Keep speaking. The worst they can do is kill you. 
And I think that's quite an important thing for us to bear in mind. And I, I'm not saying that to, for, you know, to shock people or anything like that. That is right. The worst they can do is kill you. And actually, they might kill you quite quickly, which would be a great help given how long some people take to die and how miserable it is. And then you'll go straight to be with the Lord Jesus. And it's better by far. So this gives tremendous courage as we face the enemy, whether it's you know, the secularist agenda when it comes to sexuality or whether it's the sex secularist uh, agenda when it comes to uh, universalism and relativism. Tremendous courage. Uh, they may sack you, but they won't sack you until God's time for you in that company is over. And then we have a God in heaven who will give us our daily bread. And the worst they can do is kill us. And so I, I do encourage, I didn't say it in the talk I meant to, you know, we should get our young, I mean our little ones, to read David's speech. We used to ha have our children, I used to read it with, um, with the children at least once a year. Because it'll be so good for them. There is a living God. How dare they defy? Think of Paul. What was it that made Paul in Athens say, have, be so furious at the idols? Oh, it was a sense of concern for the honor of the name of the living God. And so... I, I think it gives us tremendous courage. Thanks, William. A final question. There's lots of questions coming. We've scratched the surface. Do keep talking about these amongst one another or come and chat to William or myself afterwards. But just this question, um, perhaps just to help us think about 1 Samuel altogether so far. Um, this question asks, what have we been seeing about the Lord and his character? Yes, I think... Chapter 2, verse 1. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Verse 3. Talk no more so very tall, tall. And verse 10. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. He will exalt the power of his anointed. And we're about to have key lessons on the anointed, who looks nothing. Great. Thanks, Thanks Phil, very much.